0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to Tinker Talks, the audio format podcast that discusses his happenings behind the fence line of Tinker Air Force Base. I am your host, Mark Hybers, and today we are joined by a very special guest. He took command just over six months ago and now takes time out of his very busy day to sit down with us and have a conversation. So Colonel Paul Filchek, the 72nd Air Base Wing and Installation Commander, uh, good afternoon, sir, and thanks for taking time to join us today.
1: Hey, good afternoon, Mark. Good afternoon, uh, teammates. Hey, that was pretty funny. You said discusses. I did there, say discusses. Which is, which is the right way to lead this off because we're going to have some fun. Hey, thank you for noticing yeah, that. Yeah. that uh, hey, hey uh, uh, I really look forward to this opportunity. Um, not enough opportunities so far in this tenure to be able to talk to uh, everybody engaged with Team Tanker. Right. Awesome. So
0: let's have at it. Yes, sir. So before we jump into um, some of the things we're going to talk about today, if you wouldn't mind, could you kind of give us the 200 word or less breakdown of uh, who you are and how you got to this point.
1: I love how you're setting me up with that 200 words or less. I don't think I've uh, said anything in 200 words or less. Our so sound engineer th- Those counts. do not count. <laughs> um, so so uh, I guess let's go to the beginning and make it quick and short, but 1984, uh, yes, 1984, uh, I enlisted in the United States Air Force uh, my first duty assignment was in Texas. Uh, about a year and a half after that, I went to Korea where I met my my uh, wife, uh, who's been with me for uh, a lot of years, 32 in marriage and about 33 and a half in total. Wow. Um, crossed over to, because we want to keep this short, crossed over to the officer corps in 1997 mm-hmm. uh, after what I consider, uh, and my wife and I, considered kind of an enlisted career. We had reached senior NCO status that had five assignments, and so it kind of finish that out at a level that you could retire with pride Mm -hmm. at doing that. So we consider this our second career. And we started that in 97, uh, have done a myriad of assignments between the air staff and the MAGCOM staff at Air Mobility Command, a couple of command tours uh, at Air Force One uh, as my squadron command tour, and at uh, Ramstein, Germany for my group command. Uh, So uh, a lot of diversification, but mostly within, uh, the aircraft maintenance arena as that was my enlisted, uh, career. I was a, a grease monkey, uh, crew chief on fighters when I was <laughs> enlisted. So, uh, a long career and is to, to take the 35 plus years of service into 200 words is probably impossible.
0: I think but, so. Yes, yeah, sir. But That's a pretty good, pretty good shot at it though. Okay. So sir, looking back on your first six months of command, um, what would you say so far has been your biggest surprise about the job
1: biggest surprise all right so so it would be easy uh, to talk about uh, walking into the extraordinary challenge it is privatized housing but uh, uh, i saw that coming i was already at uh, tinker air force base over in the uh, air logistics complex as the vice commander mm-hmm. for about 10 months uh, and so uh, uh, i was very cognizant of those difficulties so in terms of surprise Uh, the, the biggest surprise to me was, um, the, how should I say it? The magnitude, the sheer magnitude of what Tinker represents, Mm -hmm. uh, across the board as an installation. We call it, the uh, we've, we've adopted the term, the leverage point of American air power. And I'm, I'm a little bit, uh shy to say that on a on a podcast because we don't want to draw a lot of uh, uh, evil attention our way <laughs> but at the same time it is what it is um, we have uh, five fully up operational wings one of them is the 448th uh, supply chain management wing uh, that services all of the organic supply for our entire air force uh, of the four other wings we in the 72nd Air Base wing are the the uh, basically the weapons platform for the others And then you have three full-up operational wings with real-world strategic alert commitments that comprise two different services and active duty and reserves. And with that, that's a pretty big responsibility, and we haven't talked about uh, the largest depot operation in the United States Air Force, the OCALC, and the fact that Headquarters Air Force Sustainment Center is here uh, and they're responsible for all sustainment for the entire Air Force uh, with locations at 26 locations in 18 states and and uh, two foreign countries. Mm. So you have all of that, uh, and then we, we lump uh, the other 45 together. And those 45 are gargantuan organizations in their own right of, of extreme leverage points in their own right, like the 38th uh, Cyber Engineering Installation Group that services the entire Air Force and itself has 22 locations. Um, the Defense Information Services Agency, the Defense Logistics Agency, the Air Force Flight Standards Agency, uh, a lot of very large, very robust, and sometimes one-of-a-kind organizations at Tinker. All of that inside the installation was probably the, the biggest surprise, was uh, I'm actually responsible for quite a bit. <laughs> and so that's, that's a pretty sobering fact, very early in the tenure.
0: That's incredible, and you talk about—I mean, just listening to you rattle off a little bit of what Tinker Air Force Base has to offer as far as its size and its its mission set—was it a benefit for you to have already been here in the ALC prior to coming over and taking this command? Yes. Given what what is here.
1: Yes. Yeah. So uh, there, there's two benefits there. One um, being being very ingrained uh, over those ten months in a community engagement uh, with Team Tinker that's unlike any place I'd been in sixteen assignments in thirty-five years. This is absolutely as good as it gets for the places I have been. I have a pretty pretty deep frame of reference and a pretty broad uh, sample space with that. So, mm-hmm. so I'd be hard pressed to see a, a community um, in our nation that's more supportive of its military than than this region of the country. And so that was really neat to already be um, kind of plugged into that before ever taking the flag. But the, uh, a bigger thing uh, in watching this operation run uh, was in learning firsthand from Colonel Kenyon Bell before I, I mm-hmm. took the, the flag. Sometimes, very often, I would say most often, uh, commanders aren't afforded that opportunity to um, be filled in and learn from their predecessor in the job. We're often jealous of the Navy. We have the Strategic Communications Wing, one here, on installation, and they, they have uh, their vice commander serve a year and a half and then take the flag to serve the second year and a half for three years of continuity. And there's a lot to be said for that system. We don't have that system in the Air Force, but it was almost like that mm-hmm. in this particular case. And so I say being over in the AOC on, on those fronts was was very advantageous. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other front is, uh, the third front is—, is understanding depot operations mm-hmm. and, and what their requirements are and what our base operating support uh, needs for them and, and how we can best uh, meet those needs uh, with the limited resources that we have and the importance of us trying to do so. Without that frame of perspective, I think we probably wouldn't service them as well as we have to this point. Right, and that's good Good for Team Tinker, actually, because uh,
0: you and Colonel Bell, actually, General Select, um both came from that same area, and so both were able to bring that that yes. that experience over, and, and it I think it helps this installation run pretty smoothly. Mm-hmm. Knowing what you have to come in and handle your biggest your biggest uh, client, if you will. Um, so, sir, when taking command of an installation this size, and we've kind of gotten into a little bit about the size of this command, um, there are certain expectations that that you'll be busy with multiple projects. Uh, construction, other opportunities challenges facing you, but not too many previous commanders have had to come in and face one of the the challenges that you've had to take on coming right in, and that of course, as you mentioned was the the housing um so if you could maybe just take a second to to give us an update on on how the housing is coming along and and uh let our community know where mm-hmm. we're at there
1: yes yeah, so so privatized housing um keeping in mind that that privatized housing is a department of defense and congressional level concern so it's not just tinker air force base that has has, has had issues with managing privatized housing over the past decade or more uh, so it's a big overarching problem of which tinker air force base is is uh, um, symbolic of the overall bigger picture right. we call uh um tinker air force base kind of ground zero uh, because uh, here is where, um, relatively speaking, some of the <clears throat> worst problems were. Uh, the unfortunate problem uh, there is that it was really undiscovered or or uh, not entirely uncovered for too long a period of time. And that was uh, the air force uh, inspection agency came uh, early in 2019 investigated tinker along with uh, a whole lot of other uh, installations and came up with 35 recommended improvement areas but that agency kind of put its finger on the pulse of what the problem was Mm -hmm. Um, and that was because privatized housing was arguably one of the very best ideas in the history of the department of defense there was no other mechanism at the turn of the century that was going to be able to recapitalize um, all of the necessary housing across all of our installations across the entire country and all the services, Mm -hmm. unless we did it this fashion. The problem with this great idea was that um, the oversight mechanism um, was flawed because it entered our residents into a uh, a private contract Mm -hmm. with a landlord that private tenant landlord relationship kind of uh, uh, took leadership chain out of the picture somewhat. Even though you always have recourse, even in a private uh, relationship off installation to go to your first sergeant, to go to your housing office, to get advice, to get legal counsel, um, you don't have that direct chain of command interface that's aggressive and engaged along the way. To compound that, it was a relationship between a tenant and a landlord, in which case the landlord always got his or her money because it was guaranteed BAS mm-hmm. um, BAH uh, provided to the landlord by, by the uh, contract. And so you didn't have the normal tenant landlord relationship where rents could be withheld from the landlord for not servicing. You have those factors, and then you had it functionally managed through the Air Force Civil Engineering Center uh, up through um, the Under Secretary of the Air Force for installations, energy, and the environment that aren't chain of command organizations, they're functional control organizations mm-hmm. that manage a portfolio as, as just that, as a contract portfolio. Mm-hmm. And so over the course of many years, I think we lost touch, and it's not just me, I think, it was the Air Force Inspection Agency articulated that we lost touch from a command chain perspective on that engagement with the quality of housing. We have since turned the corner on that, not just at Tinker, but DOD-wide, right. Air Force-wide, and at Tinker Air Force Base. We've turned the corner on that command of ch- chain, uh, chain of command engagement with um, both the residents and the privatized property owner. Um, and so I would characterize this problem. Sorry to get so long-winded, but I can't answer this question without providing the background and right. the cause right. as we go forward. Um, the privatized contract pro- privatized property owner balfour Beatty communities in in the case of tinker air force base um had been underservicing the needs of residents for a very long time it's it's been uh, um uh, clearly articulated by them themselves uh, articulated by the uh, acting secretary of the air force and the secretary of the air force so this isn't the installation commander speaking mm-hmm. right sir. um they got uh, um recently called uh To the carpet with basically a 90 day notice to come up with a with a plan for improvement that would actually pass muster and 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 keep them in the portfolio business right so so with that um that's not an installation point of view that's an air force point of view that they have underperformed for on, on behalf of the residents with that we had a basically three chapters of this story. The first chapter was in early 2019 when the Secretary of the Air Force mandated that we inspect all of the homes with life, uh, health and safety issues and that we determine what was wrong and burn those down. Uh, So that was, I would call chapter one, where we hit in July of 2019, 243 life, uh, health, and safety discrepancies and drove those to zero. Mm -hmm. Um, It was the drive to zero that we Um, kind of had blinders on because um, the way that Balfour Beatty was trying to gain trust with the residents was a pretty strung out and and complicated process for fixing these homes that ended up taking um, an extraordinary amount of time. Um, some, some homes have taken as much as 200 days to fix. Uh, the average hovered in the 70s and 80s of days to fix life, uh, health and safety problems. Right. And with that was a growing uh, backlog of homes that needed to be worked and a growing uh, population of residents who were getting substandard timelines and repair quality out of what they needed. So right. um, that was the second phase. Uh, with that, we had to go into a corrective measure where, where at the installation level and at the AFCAC level, we tried to entice the privatized property owner to mass resources and treat this not like housing maintenance, mm-hmm. but more like a project. Take it as a project to get in front of life, health, and safety issues um, with, with a, a resource and prioritization allocation that specifies only those problems. Get in front of it. Get the 200 and the homes grew to 213 out of our 660 had some form of life safety and health issue with the homes wow. um, and so that third <clears throat> chapter of what we were trying to accomplish was to make real progress real tangible measurable quantifiable progress uh at burning down uh in a number of areas so so the secretary of the air force asked me on her last visit um, when I told her that progress had been insufficient to this point, but I sensed that it might be turning around in a uh, brilliant question. She asked, how do you define progress? Mm. Right. And so how we've defined progress, the answer was easy because we had already predefined it progress is what we call, um, backlog slash whip work in process, which is the total volume of what you have to fix, getting that burned down to a manageable level. There should be a state in the future where you have backlog and work in process in 10s and 9s and 8s, not in 200s and 100s. When you have that, you're in washing the windows on the skyscraper mode, and you're back in that mode of being a housing maintenance Mm -hmm. service, not a project service. And and if you can get yourself to that point, that's that's one of the three steps. The other, the only way you're going to get there is to get the flow days down on each repair. Mm-hmm. So we got Balfour Beatty uh, communities to agree to a 19-day standard timeline on repairs. Now consider how aggressive that is. That they were they had some 200 days, mm-hmm. many 150 days, an average of 71 days and we got them to agree to a 19 day goal for the houses. That was the only way that they were going to reasonably work through the backlog and get it to a manageable level before the next wet season hits. And and so those are two very firm measurable um indicators of progress that we can cue on and the third being the essential piece because the biggest problem with our residents wasn't so much the timeline as the refixes on the same problem so we had a quality issue where the jobs weren't getting fixed the right the first time or the second time or Mm -hmm. the third time and so we put in there a repeat recur rate with with standard timelines for what defines a repeat and standard timelines for what defines a recur so that you could see the backlog and the whip go down you could see the flow days go down mm-hmm. both uh, magnificent improvements and not be at the expense of quality All right and so you have your three key indicators which is how we're going to define progress as the next chapter and then there's going to be a fourth chapter so i'm happy to say at this point that real progress has been made that uh and we get reports every single Day we get the daily report that that are that stipulates which residents have run into problems today, right. how many houses have we fixed today, uh, how many families are displaced and who are they and who has checked on them when, and a whole lot of other factors. Every single day we get that all the way at the top of the wing. And so with our reports, we're able to see this burn down where our average flow days have gone down. Um, our backlog has gone from a high of 213 in early October down to 137 now. And there's 34 houses in active remediation right now. So we're taking these numbers, and I would expect um, that before February hits us, we might be under 100, where we had set just one quarter before that at, at over 200. Right. And so there is progress. Now, progress needs to be me- measured um more inexactly uh, from the reference of the residents, right? And so BBC has to work on communications, 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 communications. Critical. Uh, and so they've, they've, they, they're still learning and they're still working at improving their processes, mm-hmm. but one process has to be when a resident is getting their house fixed, they have to have one point of contact. That point of contact has to be able to tell them what, when, where, why, and how, mm-hmm. every step along the way, and they stay engaged. And before they start the remediation, they have a thing called an MRI, where they're supposed to go to the house with the experts, do a whole house review and a whole house test, determine the repair, uh, uh, what, the repair plan, mm-hmm. bring that protocol and that plan back to the resident, explain to them how it's going to play out over how many days and, and when they aren't meeting those expectations, who to call and when. Those are keys to success, keeping the resident informed and the families knowing what's going on with their house. So communication is just as important. And the final piece, which will be the fourth chapter, because I'm very confident we will get um, the number of LHS houses down to about 10. We'll get the flow days down to about 19. We'll keep the repeat recur rate where it needs to be. But at that point, when BBC then pulls out this massing of resources they've they've brought to bear Mm -hmm. on the problem, do they have enduring solutions in place to where they don't lose the handle on this again? And they continue to improve their processes on communicating, their processes on on community upkeep, their processes on knowing what their maintenance is doing and their management team is doing and their leasing team is doing. All of these pieces of the puzzle that will make for a fine running organization, they are still a long ways away from that. Right. But I think we're making progress every day. So a very long uh answer but i think worthwhile because we haven't been able to talk like this to the public outside of the town halls right uh since since i've taken the flag so thanks for the question
0: oh, you're welcome sir thanks for the good answer <clears throat> it's been a, a very painful uh but very critical learning curve uh, especially when you you talk about that transparency is is going to be very crucial because you need to gain the the trust of the the people that live and in, and in, in work here and that uh that will go a long way so switching gears here we talk a lot of these things we were just talking about in housing obviously has a lot to do with with health uh, health and safety of people's lives and and we're dealing with some of the health things on another front and that is the department of defense recently made the decision to bring all the medical services up under one umbrella uh and, of course, that ultimately is going to change the way we've done business here slightly over the years for our service members, families, and the retirees. So it, has that transition been pretty overall smooth? Uh, and can you talk to us a little bit about the, the professionalism of the organization and what they had to do for all these people under under a scary scary yeah. change.
1: So so what I'm going to do is try to shorten my answers to a degree or else we're <laughs> going to be here for a couple of hours. Our sound um, engineer will let you know, sir. I, I love the way that you actually presented that question because it really does come down to the professionalism of the workforce in this case. So the Defense Health Agency mandated quite a dramatic change mm-hmm. in the way that medical services are offered uh, at the individual installations. And with that came a, a it just an, uh, basically I'll, I'll liken it to taking your toolbox um turning it upside down and shaking it wow. because every tool got put out of place and and needs to have new form foam board cut and new new tool placement and it's going to be difficult right so mm-hmm. that's what we knew going in the interesting thing about it is that uh with my, like right in line with my own leadership philosophy before i ever took the flag um, Colonel Trinkle, Jen Trinkle, the medical group commander, um, Colonel Dave Hardy, um, Colonel Wagner, um, and their, their squadron commanders, uh, Hill and, and Birchfield and, and team. They are just an off-the-charts um, level of quality officers and quality lead- leaders as, as well as uh, um, medical providers. Uh, they're the total package. Um, nothing has impressed me more. Uh, in my first seven months than how they handled the DHA transition to business. You took, uh, uh, four squadrons and transformed them into three. Uh, you took a change in Manning, a reallocation of Manning and a different way of delivering resources. And what Trinkle did with her team is what I love to see is they put a curtain up mm-hmm. And they made all of the sausage and did all of the churning and all of the ugly mess um, and, and uh, the gnashing of teeth and the crying. It was very, very difficult work. Uh, I came in for a good portion of that work. Uh, it, was a, it was actually quite a big deal. When you come into the wing and, and you take a wing, you, you aren't normally going to be saddled with. A DHA medical conversion like that, coupled with a privatized housing crisis, coupled with, um, a very timeline sensitive, um, acquisition process and depot of the future kind of role, Mm -hmm. um, three, very hard hitting things that needed to be rectified within half a year, uh, before you've been oriented into the wing. You have to do those things, and so I have to say publicly right now, thank you to the medical group because they made that very easy for me, and what they did in putting up that curtain was get all of the hard work done, all of it ahead of DHA's desired pace and timeline, all of it in line with the new standards and carried it forward almost completely and totally transparent to the customer. And there has been no real interruption in any services with none expected on, on the horizon. Right. What they've done is create an organization that's more, uh, more leaned towards um, a functionally specific approach to generating better, more capable, fit warfighters mm-hmm. and having that kind of, of uh, responsiveness to warfighter needs while taking the family care and, and the retiree care side of it and not letting that take a hit. And I think it has been transparent to everybody. On top of that, they, they've opened up a partnership with VA and actually expanded resources and and, and uh, access to veterans who need care to do so on the installation in a pretty unique partnership in its own right. right. So I would say that uh, from the customer perspective, um, if you have medical needs, you couldn't have... Uh, a better advocate than Jen Trinkle and her team over at the med group. That's They've very, pulled it off well.
0: Very high praise, sir. And yeah, and I was supposed to be short, but I went long. So <laughs> next one will be short. <laughs> well, I mean, you, you talk about, uh, it, we couldn't possibly explain how difficult a process that would be to take, you know, one, an, an Air Force medical way of philosophy and thinking and then roll it into having to to do this under with all branches it's a it's it's been phenomenal so one thing you talked about there sir was was um the the milcon military construction projects and some of these acquisitions and things that have been going on heavily even since you first took the seat and one of our largest milcon projects the uh the new air traffic control tower out there uh, it has been delayed a couple of times for various reasons, so maybe you could give us an update on, on how the new tower is coming and uh, if, if
1: we'll be able to get in there pretty soon and start operations. The, the new tower. Yeah, so, so I had to pick up uh, <laughs> conveniently on another Melcon piece when we did the uh, uh, ribbon-cutting ceremony at the first KC-46 hangar. I had to pick up uh Senator Inhofe off the flight line mm-hmm. and and as he gets into the car and, and we drive uh a little ways uh, uh he he looked at the new tower and he said how's my tower coming and, and <laughs> I said to be honest sir I don't want to tell you yet right <laughs> <laughs> and he gave me an odd look uh, we, had, we had been acquaint- acquainted with each other a couple other times uh primarily because of privatized housing and before in the depot so mm-hmm. Um, we weren't strangers to each other but he gave me a quizzical look and i said sir it, it, um spring let's just say spring right and and got quickly got him onto another subject the issue with the tower um unfortunately these things kind of happen uh the the contractor who was uh, building the tower uh in a design build contract had designed um equipment for the tower that was agreed upon by the government, and then over the course of constructing the tower, had installed equipment that wasn't that equipment. Um, that in in the industry, in their position, from the contractor's position, um, were. Uh, suitable subs that were standard suitable subs uh, from uh, the government's position. They weren't according to design. So they had to sort through an issue on, on the protest from the contractor and the insistence by the government that they take that equipment out and put in mm. the equipment that was called for in the design. That's probably as simply as I could put it. Uh, that put a significant delay on it. Now we have some form and fit uh, function challenges that have delayed. Uh, that a little bit, but um, we were originally tracking to about mid-March. I don't want to commit to something before the 1st of April, but it's right. it's very close. It's probably within 100 days. Uh, but what we did not want to do was uh, uh, build something uh, uh, as enduring as the control tower mm-hmm. and have it come short of customer expectations and needs on the day that you move in. Right. And so these delays are to get it exactly right, to make sure that we have uh, uh, something that will stand the test of time as a legacy to tanker. Good. So it's it's a mixed bag of it's going to be right when it's done, but it's going to take longer to get it right.
0: Well, that's okay. I guess it's it's important. And, uh, you know, you got to make sure we, we do run flying operations here off of two different runways, so we need to make sure that we've got a good operable working tower. Yes, leverage um, point of American air power. Yes, I sir. Am. That is That's what we heard. so tinker as as a base is not unique in the way of having a civilian workforce Uh, however it may be unique in the actual sheer size and volume of this civilian workforce why is the integration of civilians and military together such a benefit and critical to our mission
1: Wow, that's an interesting question so (laughs) so why is the integration such a benefit Hmm. so uh, you, you raise a good point about the civilian workforce at Tinker Air Force Base, but it's even more than that. The diversification at Tinker is is arguably only matched by two or three other installations in the mm-hmm. world, and that's that's a combination of of government civilian employees, of uni- unionized civilian mm-hmm. employees, and of contractors. Right. An extraordinary amount of contract and uh, contracted workforce, and so you you have these pieces. And what I can say, really, to, to k- try to get to keep it short, with these pieces, you have a level of diversity in the workforce. As I as I mentioned before, you have um, active duty, and you have reserves, uh, full up operational wings, and you have Navy. Uh, you also have uh, uh, Marines and Army in some capacity, and you have these agencies, and then you have the contractors like a LUTIC, um, the big uh, base operating support contract that we have. Mm-hmm. Then you have your government civilians, and and then you have your, your wage-grade unionized civilian workforce, which is the predominant majority of the workforce. All of that diversity is kind of like a a model of our nation mm-hmm. and what built our nation, and right. that the diversity of fibers that make up the rope um, end up strengthening the rope. And the biggest problem we could ever run into is the dissolution of those into single pockets, right? So if you start separating the groups, um, giving them their their, their own unique um niches in in the way that business is done you end up unraveling the fiber of what makes them great Mm -hmm. so the first thing is that that diversity is is the fiber that makes us great Mm. um it it makes us less vulnerable uh, because we have organic active duty that can overcome for for loss of contractor support if we need to We have civilians who can also overcome for lack of contractor support. You have civilians who actually deploy You have other civilians who don't deploy, but their active duty counterparts deploy. So you have all of this mixture. Mm -hmm. It makes it a very complicated way of doing business, but it adds a a strength of resiliency and a redundancy to what we do. But that's secondary to the most important part of the civilian workforce, and that's the deep-rooted technical expertise and experience that you get in a civilianized workforce. Right. Um, as, as a good example, is a unionized, civilianized workforce over in the, the depot operations, uh, it's a family business. And you give 30-year, 40-year, 50-, 60-, 70-year pins to folks who, who are still working um, into their 70s, 80s, and 90s. That level of experience is just extraordinary. They can fix anything, anywhere, anytime, right? right. right. Um, and then you have that level of buy-in that's uncommon in the military. Uh, I tell people in this wing uh, make a point of thanking a civilian for their service today mm. because this whole community is is really engaged all the time with thanking people in uniform for their service to our nation when in fact the civilians are serving just as much um, the the folks in this community who've made it a family business who's great grandparents and grandparents and parents and brothers and sisters and children have all been in this business, or at least as bought in and invested in what we do as a national defense mechanism here at Tinker, Mm -hmm. as anybody who wears the uniform. We can never forget the great men and women who wear uniforms in our nation. Um, About half of them are in their first term of service and haven't decided what they want to do with their life. Right. And so with that level of investment, um, you, you, you hope to retain half of those. And if you have half of those, you hope to retain them through a third enlistment as they, they slowly and gradually over time, become more and more invested in what they do Mm -hmm. for the air force. I posit that the civilian workforce already has that because of its experience level, that it's already invested, fully bought in and supportive of, of what they do in that, what I call the look in the mirror time. So, so you're in short. Your, your real strength is the diversity of the workforce, and then that deep-seated experience base that civilians offer that the active duty military is hard-pressed to match. Right, very nicely put. Do, do you ever find that you, uh, your
0: leadership style has to change somewhat, especially walking into a command position
1: with such a heavily integrated civilian population? It, it, it's a challenge, um, but I try not to lead by a style and so so uh, what that means is as, as you go into a leadership um uh, challenge uh, no matter what level the challenge you go in with eyes wide open and you have to it's just like giving a speech uh, the textbooks on giving a speech you have to analyze your audience mm-hmm. and so a uh, leadership style should always uh, adapt to the nature of the audience the nature of the people doing the work and so, what's funny is that um, my my fundamental premise as a leader is that we're all equal. It's a fundamental presence to the very core of my being. That's not a technique. And mm. so, over time, as people get to know me, they know that it's real. That we're all equal. We have UCMJ mandated roles and responsibilities that we must fill. All right. But at the very fundamental human nature, we're all the same. Mm. That I don't. I'm not better than somebody else because i got a 31 year head start i mean of course i'm in a higher position because of the head start so i have that philosophy that that um we're only differentiated by what paths we have chosen for ourselves when we started those paths and what our pace is on those paths none of those are a value judgment on the person and so we're all essentially equal i am no better than my mom i'm no better than my sisters um, and if I'm no better than them, I'm no better than anybody that works with or for me. So with that, if you have that as your fundamental premise coming into a leadership position, then I, I don't believe that it matters that you lead civilians or contractors or active duty or reserve. You can, you can lead a diversified workforce because you understand that it's people, and we're all in this together. Right. Uh, the bigger challenge, though, to get to the point, the bigger challenge is messaging that to the civilian workforce. Because um, the civilian workforce may uh, feel like they are not um, held in equal esteem mm-hmm. as a military workforce if they have a military commander. Uh, but that, that central premise that we're all people doing the same thing and where what we wear, whether it's a tie or a dress or a blazer or a uniform, what we wear is inconsequential to what we do. we're all in this together pulling on the same rope so if i can get that message to the civilian war corps that a they're at least as invested as our military members which i've already established in the previous question and b um they're probably in many ways much more valuable because the depth of their experience um and and their their knowledge of what we do if i and then the third thing c Remembering that I'm not counting one, two, three, I'm going <laughs> A, B, C. I almost said in, in three. Nice catch. Like, yeah, nice catch. Um, C uh, is that they're part of something that's truly remarkable, and that I think you get that from us working together o- mm. over the last uh, seven months. Yes, sir. That um, I'm really big on plugging our folks into what it means to be at Team Tinker, that right. we are the leverage point of American mm-hmm. air power, that our depot services 76% of the Air Force, that we have three up. Three full-up operational wings with real strategic alert commitments. That what we do here is unlike what anybody else does anywhere else in the world, Mm -hmm. and they're on that team. Right. And the team suffers if any of us go down. Right. So the biggest thing is if I can effectively message that over the next year and a half. Well, sir, I think you actually
0: you've you've done a great job since you've been here communicating it through actions. So um, this this will help. But you you certainly you know you show that. Quite often, mm-hmm. so it's. Uh, you want a promotion, do you? Yeah, you do. Well. <laughs> well, it <laughs> never hurts, sir. talking me, you're right. <laughs> so you spent 12 years, a little more than 12 years, coming up through the enlisted ranks uh, as a maintainer before you commissioned. So, did serving in an enlisted capacity prior to commissioning help your you as a leader at all?
1: Oh, oh yes, yes. So. So you can have uh, a truly great, truly great, phenomenal leader who was never enlisted. You can have a, an enlisted leader who ends up not being very good as a transition to officer corps. So that's not really the case that, that and you didn't say that. I'm just right. saying in general mm-hmm. that I'm not a, a fan that prior enlisted officers make the best officers. Mm-hmm. I think um, um, the best people make the best officers, right? But for my particular case, being enlisted was, a, was just an extraordinary advantage. You know, it's an advantage on two fronts. Um, one, because I was enlisted so long and had been exposed to so many different types of aircraft and five different assignments, which is pretty rare for somebody who's been enlisted just 12 and a half years to have had five assignments in, in three different major commands. Um, so I had a, a lot of experience coming in, the, the, the point being Initially, it was an extraordinary advantage over my peers, Hmm. just an unspeakable advantage as I had no comprehension of my fellow second lieutenants and first lieutenants and what it took them to learn the Air Force. They were busy learning the Air Force and and how to become an Air Force officer while I was already well-steeped in being an Air Force. I had already been a production superintendent. Uh, and a section chief so I was already well steeped in Air Force leadership at the senior NCO level and didn't have to learn those things over time and instead Mm -hmm. could just go to my agenda right right, as a leader Mm -hmm. go straight into my agenda and my agenda quickly evolved at that point um with, with some successes and some some drives to to actually transform organizations from the very start as a second lieutenant they don't think that way, not not normally. Right. And so that was an, an intense advantage to have been enlisted so long, to go in and want to transform a flight and then transform the next flight. Um, and those were uh, – they, they they helped me solidify that that don't settle for excellence, make history. We'll probably talk about that a little bit more if you ask me more questions. <laughs> but uh, what I'm trying to, to – press forward in this wing is, is the core values mm. are, are everything we stand for those core values um, are the bedrock of everything and that that third core value excellence in all we do um, shouldn't be treated as the end-all be-all but just the starting point all right um don't settle for that excellence instead transform and make history do mm. something that makes history Uh, in your organization, and if you're thinking that way and you're looking for those opportunities, it's going to make you so much more effective. So that was the first thing with being enlisted, it had me caged to that from the very first days as a a dumb young officer, right? Right. Uh, The second thing was, I I tell a lot of people this story, Um, it gives me, I think, a, a lot of empathy that helps me take that, that we're all equals approach business having been a zero striper and a two striper and a buck sergeant for for a few few days before still on staff sergeant and and going home with grease up to my armpits all the way up my arms and needing to take a shower um straight to the shower before i could ever sit on any furniture Um, you know having lived that Mm -hmm. i tell people the story of of a wheel well in the a10a episode that i had in in mop gear full up mop gear changing a Schrader valve on a nose wheel steering accumulator in an A10 and it was about 97 degrees out with 95% humidity in in Myrtle Beach during an exercise and we had a a lubricant called gorillas knot And we had hydraulic fluid coming out of the Schrader valve and the gorilla's knot in my black gloves. And there was some kind of chemical reaction going on Mm -hmm. where the gloves were starting to come apart and smear and even smoke a little bit. And um, so there's there's wisps of smoke and and black from the gloves all over the Schrader valve to where I couldn't even see the threads. And my mask was fogging up and I couldn't see with my mask and I couldn't breathe. And my body temperature is probably 120. And you couldn't get your arms around and onto the Schrader valve because you were up in the wheel well and there's very little room to move and nothing was working. And, and I ended up coming out of the wheel well, taking my mask off, throwing it as far as I could down the ramp and saying, I'm out, looking right <laughs> on the IG and saying, I'm out um wow and and after facing the ramifications of that said decision um (laughs) that not being the point the point being it made me very sensitive sorry for the long story but Mm. it made me very sensitive to um, uh, be cognizant of what you're asking your folks to do Mm -hmm. um, because it's hard and and make these decisions recognizing what they're going to go through as you ask them to do that and if it needs to be done it needs to be done but if you're not cognizant of what you're asking them you're gonna ultimately just ask and ask and and, um, uh, not not really be bought into what they're going through and you're gonna miss the pulse of your workforce so uh, whether or not that has proven successful over time um, being cognizant of what I'm asking them to do and wanting to still do it with them at every opportunity, I think, is an advantage of being an enlisted corps. I used to tell people that I'm jealous of, of medical group commanders and operations group commanders because in those two groups, they're leading people mm-hmm. who are doing what they used to do. Right whereas in aircraft maintenance and a lot of times in security forces and logistics officer work and finance work whatever your your level of work when you get put in leadership positions of those folks you're trained as an officer in those fields but not in doing what the civilians and enlisted force are doing you have no frame of reference for what they're doing until they teach you what they're doing and you haven't lived through the hard times and so with that, that's an advantage of being prior enlisted, um, that you have gone through those things, and hopefully you haven't forgotten where you come from. Right.
0: That's that's incredible. It that was a tough question
1: th- for staying short on. Well,
0: sorry about that. Um, so I, I think you may have already answered this question, but um, do you have a leadership
1: philosophy? So that that's a tough yeah. one, because I don't think you should go in a central philosophy. But I guess you could say, philosophically speaking, mm-hmm. um that premise that premise that um we all have equal value as people Mm -hmm. that just is fundamental right Right. so you start with that i I, I like to throw in two other things the care piece um and pop so pop means purity of purpose right? right leadership with pop i had once as a squadron commander at andrews wrote written an article on pop right purity of purpose as you try to make decisions um don't think about what the boss might think of your decision don't think about what the masses might think of your decisions don't think about personal gain with those decisions don't be risk averse with those decisions just let the decision stand on its own merits and look and see whether you're making this choice out of a purity of purpose for just what needs to be done it's hard to to describe Uh, but but You take your personal agendas and and your personal fears out of it and just just go with pop right right. so if you have that fundamental premise that we're all equal that i'm going to lead with pop but that i care and so the caring piece i think is what too often we miss out on and and it's really when i say care i don't say care about what right you just care or you don't that means that when you sit down to write your civilian appraisal or your officer performance report that you care that you get it right. You care internally that you get it right for them. That means that um, as you go to the crisis action team to do an exercise, you actually care that you carry your weight in mm-hmm. that environment. Uh, it means that for each person, you actually care. Um, it doesn't mean you have to always be just kind and gentle, All right. but you have to legitimately care about that person. And, and if in all things you just care about what we do and why we do it and what your role is in all of this, you're not going to fail because you care about what you do. And I have a philosophy that for people that work with you, um, that you can only prove that you care when it's most inconvenient to you and most mm-hmm. crucial to them.? Mm-hmm. Right? So, so you can't bring in donuts on Fridays. Um, remember everybody's birthday have uh, um, cut back Thursdays, and do all of these things that prove that you care, mm-hmm. and, and you'll end up kidding yourself that you care because you may not have sold the workforce that you care uh, because every single one of those cases are convenient to you. right? Right? They're on your own terms. Mm-hmm. You ultimately prove that you care when you answer that 2 a.m. phone call, and you drive to them and you help them out in their moment of need. And when you, when you can find those opportunities where you've helped somebody when they needed you most, when it was obviously a really bad time for you, you've won them or you've proven that you care. So right. I, would, I would encourage everybody. And it goes to the resiliency thing that we're going to try to continue into perpetuity until mm-hmm. the end of time. We're going to drive on resilience. If everybody would be responsible for somebody today mm-hmm. and would come through for somebody Uh, today um, when it's inconvenient for them you would have uh, uh, no resiliency problem anywhere and so so fundamentally care um, remember that we're all equal leadership with pop all of it just centered on on the core values if you deviate from the core values you ultimately fail right Um, we have to have integrity first we have to internalize the service before self which is part of that caring and we have to as a minimum be excellent in all we do. If you have that as your foundational bedrock, then I think you're not going to fail as a leader.
0: That's great great philosophy, sir. And I think really a lot of that just it can't be taught. That is not something you get out of textbooks. To care is not that is not a trait that comes out of a out of a handbook somewhere. So wonderful philosophy and very well said. So before we get out of here, sir, is you you've done so much in your short period of time that you've been here. But I think you're getting promoted. <laughs> well, I'm I'm looking I'm 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 really working hard on it. So, is there any one thing that you would like to accomplish prior to your leaving this command? Holy cow! And one you've thing. got a ways to go. So it's one a, thing, huh? Just so, one thing.
1: So uh, wow, one thing. So there is so much. Now, obviously. Obviously, we have to fix privatized housing, Mm -hmm. get it to an acceptable level for our men and women who are fighting our nation's wars and their families. Right. But I'm not going to pick that because that's a fundamental um, minimum requirement on my watch. Uh, I do not want this extending to the next commander. That would be absolutely intolerable to me. I actually don't want it extending past the summer or the fall uh, to where we get BBC in a good spot. I I have a slogan I tell people that it's from the Marines commercial, right? Always run towards the gunfire. Mm -hmm. Run towards it. Don't shy away from it. I wouldn't want that particular problem set on anybody else. Um, But we also have to be careful not to run into it, Mm. right? Don't run into the crossfire, right? So run towards the gunfire, but not into the crossfire. So I'm going to take that as a given, and it's not going to be my one, right? And we have um, the depot of the future, a lot of of different things in the pot on that, and a lot of really big uh, hard nuts to crack and very short timeline on that. And I'm not going to go there. Um, We also have increased uh, BOS support to the ALC and increased uh, uh, arrangements with the 552. Not going to go there because uh strategically we're centered on three pillars um the pillars are to defend this house mm-hmm. because i've already articulated how important this house is to our nation's defense right. and how everybody's role in defending this house is as important as anybody else's right the, another pillar is um to secure the future and the third pillar and they're not in, in order because they're actually like a venn diagram all stacked across each other mm-hmm. is to raise this family so if you look at those pillars and you say, we want to defend this house, raise this family, and secure the future, there is an obvious overlap among all of that, that as you secure the future, you have to secure the future by developing the workforce and making them better than you found them. And as you raise this family, that's exactly what you're doing as a priority area. And as you defend this house, you do so with a, an energized um, and more skilled and better capable, more fully developed workforce Um, that that drives into that and so um i like to spend dimes to make dollars i like to build strategies that leverage to maximum effect Mm -hmm. and as you look at leveraging to maximum effect if you're raising this family you are secure in the future you are defending this house and my number one uh, priority has always been throughout my career is to develop to elevate everybody around us and on our teams so here's a philosophy i've told leaders and that is um, you can change all of your military construction rack and stack you can get more money and get more things on the apple and get more things on the ato and really change the functional structure of your entire organization you can make policy and you can make procedure and you can have all of that completely alter the way the business is run and and you can actually win resources for, for your organization that nobody else has ever won before you can do all of these things and as soon as you walk away from that organization somebody else can undo every single one of them mm. somebody else can change the milk on rack and stack because it's a personality driven process and they were better at it in the other organization somebody will obviously overturn half of your policies as soon as you're gone mm. so those don't stand the test of time as you start whittling through uh, what your legacy may or may not be in me talking to leaders, it will always be what's in the people that you were left with. Right. Mm -hmm. Those people, um, did you raise the waterline? Did you make people better than you found them? Because that's a legacy that will pay forward long after you're gone, the legacy that will stand the test of of time and will actually hopefully populate geometrically as other people invest in people along the way. So my philosophy is to invest in people to make them better than I found them Mm. so that when I'm gone, the organization is better and the organizations that they go to are better and that everybody's paying that forward. But it's not that easy because you don't do it via ad hoc you don't do it via mentoring you do it via a codified quantified enrollment program across the board and that's what we're after over this. so the, the one thing that i would most want to accomplish is the finalization and codification of every single thing development wise that is offered on this installation into a a credits-based formula that any organization that any leader that any individual can pick and choose from and tailor coursework that will show who's enrolled in what who's graduated from what and how much of the water line we have actually hit right right so that's a goal of mine is to be able the big key short words here uh or short sentence here be able to quantify that we have raised the water line of everybody that works at tinker and i think we'll get there
0: outstanding so, so that's that's amazing sir and i think that's going to be a great place for us to uh to wrap up i do very much appreciate you taking time out of your extremely busy schedule to sit down and, and have a conversation with us and so uh, it's been a great talk sir thank you
1: thank you so who won the bet uh, well, how, how long <laughs> that would take
0: well uh We can't say. We didn't really make one. But uh, anyway, with that, we thank you for joining us for another episode of Tinker Talks. And uh, please don't forget to subscribe and and leave us feedback. We'd like to know what everybody out there wants to hear or what you think of this podcast. Uh, Don't forget to check us out on the social media fronts. That's at Tinker Air Force Base on Facebook and Instagram and at Team underscore Tinker on Twitter. So until next time, uh, thanks for joining us. And everybody out there, have a great day and a great week.